Welcome to Is This Working? We're two best friends who have honest conversations about money, careers, and success. With me, Anna Codrarado. And me, Tiffany Philippou. This week, we're joined by the Sunday Times bestselling author, speaker, novelist, and host of the number one creative careers podcast, Control-Alt-Delete, Emma Gannon. We're so excited to share the conversation we had with Emma with you. We really drill down into the many different and sometimes sneaky ways that self-sabotage can show up in our lives. And we also talked about how to overcome it. Not only that, but we had some juicy chats about money, which I thoroughly enjoyed as longtime listeners of the show know that I just love talking about the green stuff. Um, Also, I recently went on Emma's brilliant podcast, Control All Delete, to talk about my new book and the various challenges of being a freelancer. So once you've listened to this, head over to Control All Delete and well, listen to all of the episodes, but you can hear me talk more if you want to. What I love about Emma is the thread that runs through all her work is about creating and living a life on your own terms. So whether that's in her book, The Multi-Hyphen Method, which was all about creating a portfolio career that fits around your life, or her novel Olive, where the protagonist doesn't want to have kids. It's that continuing theme, which is something that we're huge fans of discussing on this podcast. For sure. And I think it's the sort of episode that you're going to want to sit down and listen to with a cup of tea and really create some space to hear what, well, what Emma had to say and what we discussed, because it will really make you think differently about your own life. Which is what this podcast is all about questioning everything we've ever been taught about work and our lives. On with the show. Hi, Emma. Welcome to the show. Hello. I love listening to your show, so I'm very excited to be on it. I might re-listen to this episode later. (laughs) (laughs) We do love re-listening to ourselves. So um, you wrote a book recently called Sabotage, How to Silence Your Inner Critic and Get Out of Your Own Way. Um, The story of how this book came to be, I think is actually a really nice metaphor for the theme of the book and actually a great example of how getting out of your own way can lead to great things. So can you start by telling us how the book came to be? Yes. So it's very much a personal book. I wrote it after I'd worked out a few things about myself because I definitely am a firm believer that I don't know if writing a book while you're in the middle of your own stuff, your messy stuff is good for you. I think Brené Brown always says that you need to process it first in private and then you can publicly try and share. So I basically self-sabotaged myself for years and I split it up in the book to in between three different things or four actually, procrastination, perfectionism, inner critic and fear of self-promotion. And I wanted to explore broadly what it is but for me it was definitely the inner critic like we all have one but it was really starting to mess with me and I think a bit of self-doubt is good but when things start literally going wrong because you're kind of doing it to yourself that is self-sabotage so I basically interviewed loads of therapists under the guise of I'm writing a book I know you guys have probably been there as journalists you're like I've got an excuse to interview top Uh, people in this field and I basically cured myself of self-sabotage whilst writing this book so I I do feel passionately about the topic and um, just to give like a specific example it was around the time I really wanted to start writing fiction and I just it was like an out-of-body experience where I just kept sabotaging what actually could have been quite simple and yeah I just wanted to kind of explore how hard it is, I think, to get out of your own way. What are some of the ways that 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 self-sabotage actually showed up for you? So you've just talked about how you wanted to write a piece of fiction and that you were getting in your own way. What were you, what were you doing and how did you stop doing that? I mean, I basically started acting like a teenager. (laughs) (laughs) It was actually really embarrassing. And I was like, God, we've got to talk about this. Like fear is disguised in so many ways we're just so scared all the time if we're being snappy with someone or we are even really judgmental about someone 
or we pretend we don't want to go to the meeting or we cancel our plans. A lot of that is based in fear. And I just sort of shut down whenever I tried to do it or whenever my agent tried to talk to me about it. I was really like moody and I just wasn't being myself. And I think self-sabotage is really strange because it is like an out-of-body experience. You're like, why can't I just get my shit together basically and do the like steps I need to take to get out of this and there are so many different ways but I guess with the multi-hyphen method I wrote a book about the tools that we can use like that we have on our laptops whereas sabotage is meant to be the tools mentally to get through things um so it's silly things like I would maybe like drink a bottle of wine before knowing that at 8am I had something really important on. I basically was trying to mess it up so I had an excuse. And this is what self-sabotage is. Well, there's lots of ways, but this is one where you kind of want something to blame it on. So people do this all the time with, um, they'll like do a presentation, but they'll do it hungover and kind of half-heartedly. And then people will be like, oh, that wasn't great. And you'll be like, yeah, well, I didn't even try. And so I think not putting our full effort into things can be self-sabotage. And we did a podcast episode about fear of success as well. And what's really clever about self-sabotage, as you've just said, is it can hide itself in ways that we kind of justify it to ourselves. So I'm working on at the moment, this concept around the judge and like being very judgmental of other people and how that's actually can be a sabotaging thing as well. Um, and again, like, yeah, as I said, they can be so sneaky, all these little sabotaging uh, things that we do. Are there any in particular that you find are sneaky and well hidden? Well, it's interesting because I guess the book really is about self-reflection because like you say it's so sneaky and unless you unpick what you're doing I mean now I can see it in myself and I'm like oh you're doing that thing again and I think there's two things that are really interesting about self-sabotage is and firstly it's not a bad thing it's actually kind of self-defense it's basically your body and your mind saying okay you need to reroute or you need to do this a different way so for me it was definitely a fear of success thing it was definitely an upper limiting thing where um, I was getting scared basically of how many people were looking at me so I was just wanting to shrink myself but on the other side self-sabotage can actually occur when you're going down the wrong path so for example if you tomorrow applied for like a job that was completely different to what you're doing now and you actually messed up the interview kind of on purpose that's actually because you're self-sabotaging because it's probably a good thing that you know you don't want it so it's it's complicated and it's not just like you're self-sabotaging for one reason there's so many layers to this but reading the book and breaking it down it's so fun being able to be like oh I'm doing that thing stop doing that yeah um I actually really liked what you said about um the saboteur because yeah I've through coaching training we've learned about saboteurs and how they're actually designed to keep you safe and that and actually kind of befriending them because you also talk about the like being compassionate with your sabotage behavior so definitely like acknowledging that they exist they mean well um and (laughs) which I quite like it makes them a bit more friendly and as you said then we can be compassionate with them and then move on it's true. And I've just read actually an amazing book called The Way of Integrity. It's Martha Beck's new book. And she's got such a great way of looking at things because she basically says that whenever you're suffering, and that can be like mentally or physically, it's basic, it is a kind of sign or a clue. Burnout, for example, is a clue that something isn't working. When you're feeling really down about a particular thought, that is basically a prompt for you to unpick that. And I know it sounds a bit too maybe optimistic and positive, but every time now I feel weird in myself, I just think, okay, this is this is an opportunity. Like what, what am I trying to be told here? And um, self-sabotage is definitely one of those things. But I, I almost think that's the key here because when we think about this in a work context, we are actively taught not to be vulnerable, not to talk about our personal feelings, that there is a hard line between the personal and the professional. Um, At least, you know, I'm thinking about how the majority of people work. You know, if you go into an office, uh, because obviously it doesn't really matter how I'm behaving in my private sort of home office. But if you're going into a any sort of traditional workplace or conducting yourself over email or 
communicating in, in whatever way in a professional context, it is supposed to be a place that doesn't allow for emotions to come into it. You know, this is just business. And so if we're thinking about our careers and how if something comes up for us that feels uncomfortable, we're almost actively taught not to let that in. Uh, and it's hard, it's hard even in our personal lives, you know, we're not, we're not taught at school that feelings come from the body and to listen to physical sensations and that the mind and the body are connected. None of this is taught. We, we, you know, we're not encouraged to develop our emotional intelligence and we're actively discouraged from doing so in a professional setting. So it can be really hard to listen to what we're trying to tell ourselves and then to act on it. And then of course, all of this is coming at the backdrop of, well, work is inherently good. Any job is better than no job. Don't quit. So if you're sat there in a, in a situation, in a professional situation, whatever you do, whether you work for yourself, whether you work for an employer and you are finding that all this self-sabotage is coming up for you because actually you're trying to tell yourself that you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. All of the messages around you are telling you to silence that voice. So, I mean, I don't even really have a question here, but my point is just that it's it's just really rough because all of these things can happen and it can be really hard to kind of push push through and actually listen to what the path that we're trying to put ourselves on. Totally. And something I learned in the book that really felt eye-opening to me was that we can self-sabotage ourselves by carrying on with something. And mm. I can't remember his name now, the guy in the book, who's a psychologist, but he was saying that it's called the sunk cost fallacy. So oh, yeah. if you carry on in a job just because you're like, well, I've worked here for 10 years and I've trained to be a lawyer and I can't quit now, you kind of are self-sabotaging because you're not allowing yourself to move on. It's the same in relationships, the same with friendships. Sometimes we just have to quit things. And I'm kind of a bit of a, I, I think we should quit. I'm I'm happily a quitter. There's so many things I've quit that people will never know about. Maybe I should share them more often. But it's like the things that you see are just the things that lasted. But it's totally okay to just say this isn't working. And actually that's letting yourself be free. People probably think that self-sabotage is, um, is quitting, but it's kind of the opposite. I think... When we're talking about quitting, I think we're talking about failure and fear of failure being quite a big thing for people. And I think especially at work, it plays out because um, I remember from a young age, my parents' generation, you never quit a job, you don't quit things. But part of that comes from that fear of failure that I think we've brought up to get used to as well. Whereas, as you say, like the sunk, sunk cost fallacy means we don't quit and we keep going and the like drudgery of like misery of work continues. It's true. And also, I really think that the problem here is that we're told very clearly from an early age what success is. And it's very traditional and it's very shiny and it's very, it's quite easy to look successful, I think, on paper. Like if you do the right things and you get the right bylines and you get the right little bits of trophies that you can put on LinkedIn but what we're not taught is that like you can literally you could be on a Maldives sunbed and feel like crap I, I like I mean it still feels controversial to like say that but I'm like why can't we match up like the inner joy with what something looks like on paper like they they clash they clash so much so something actually that Martha Beck wrote in her book recently, she said that she got three Harvard degrees because the first one wasn't enough. So she was like, okay, I'll get another one. And then she got another one and it took her three like grueling Harvard degrees to basically be like, oh, this doesn't make me happy. And still society were confused when she then went on a different path and did something else. So I think we self-sabotage sometimes because we're like, we can't let go of this idea that success looks a certain way. And it's so freeing to realize that it's kind of all a bit of a construct. I absolutely love that. And that resonates so much. And, you know, it's something that we've talked about so many times on this show that it's all about redefining success on your own terms. But something that I think I'm really struggling with at the moment is that it's, 
and I, and I do, I have my own definition of success and everyone I think kind of should have one that resonates for them. But at the same time, I still also feel there is something in the back of my mind that I'm kind of like, oh, but I do want this to tick the external markers of success. I do, I, I can't, you know, I, it's been such a journey to get to the point where I've realized we need to redefine success, but then it's still, it's not an overnight thing. It's not kind of like I have now completely given up on, on any sort of external need for external validation. I still want that. And it's still a tension and it's still an ongoing journey. Is that something that you've, that you've also found, or if you have managed to just let go of all of those external markers, how, how have you done that? Well, I've been reflecting on this and I think if I was in my twenties and I was listening to a podcast and someone was like, it's not about those external markers. It's about finding yourself. And it doesn't matter about what anyone else thinks. Like I'd find that annoying. Cause I, in my twenties, I was like, no, I want a really good LinkedIn or I want my bio to make me feel good. Like I wanted those things. And I almost feel like there's almost two chapters of our lives. Well, there's lots of chapters, but like for me in success, there's two, there's like getting the thing you think you want and then you reach that and then you're like kind of starting the next phase of your quote unquote success because it is true that if you get something really shiny, like you get on the Sunday Times bestseller list or something, that do- it doesn't last. Like truly it doesn't. Um, everyone says it. It doesn't, you don't then like feel amazing for the rest of your life. Um, it, sometimes the opposite can happen. You can actually go into like a weird funk because you're like, oh, my life hasn't changed. So I think it's almost like you want to be invited to the party and then you can decline the party afterwards. Like you kind of, then you get to choose. So I think, you know, it's all, it's different for all of us. And But sometimes you just need to get up the mountain so you can look down and be like, what do I actually want now? I really identify with that once um, it's that arrival fallacy thing. So I wanted a book deal so badly for about a year and a half or so. And then I, I was obsessed and then changed my whole life for it. And then I got it and I was like, okay, cool. Like, um, and then just started worrying about everything else. But I do want to defend going after the external validation and markers to a certain extent, because actually the way I see them, whether that's having a publisher of your book or lots of social media followers or lots of podcast listeners or whatever it might be, it does, those things do open the doors for you to build a creative working life that that works for you. And similarly, it's not just for creatives, like say you have worked at prestigious companies, maybe you can go and work somewhere else and demand a higher salary, which gives you more freedom. Like I think there is actually, because I do think it's a bit confusing for people, these conflict, because I feel the confusion, but I do actually think that, that those external things do play a role in helping you get to your own version of success. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I feel like now I'm in my 30s, I'm reflecting back and it's really interesting what external markers of success even mean now. Because I feel like they've changed because like not to be mean on like traditional companies, but I don't really want to work for them. (laughs) Like that to me isn't really an external marker anymore. So maybe maybe an external marker is different for all of us. Because like, if I'm being honest, like if I went on the Oprah Winfrey podcast, I would be... I would be on a high for like 10 years. Like that is an external marker that I would absolutely welcome. But I think the external markers for millennials and Gen Z have changed and like their markers might be different to mine. Like maybe like going viral on TikTok is an external marker for them, whereas that is not for me. So like that's been interesting uh, interesting to unpick because like, as you guys know, the magazine world, you know, that doesn't inspire me anymore. That That used to be, a logo that I would love on my website, not anymore. So I don't know if it's like always evolving, but I get you on the social media followers thing. But I also think that that is a weird one as well, because it's very much like a vanity metric. Uh, I know someone who runs like a six figure, incredible business. She's got 300 followers, but that's like 300, like very wealthy, interesting people who want to spend money with her. So does a million followers even mean that much anymore I'm not sure I don't know
This episode is sponsored by Wild. Wild is a natural deodorant brand that has created an effective, long-lasting deodorant that is vegan, cruelty-free, and free of nasty chemicals and parabens. And it actually works. The packaging is sustainable and plastic-free and fits right through your letterbox. And the cases are made from aluminium and the refills, which smell great, are home compostable too. You can customise the colour and choose from five cents and even personalise it with your name. We've been fans of natural deodorant for quite a while, haven't we, Anna? Yes, you actually are the one who converted me to natural deodorant because I used to think I was too gross and sweaty to be able to use natural deodorant, but you taught me that you have to wait out a period of transitioning as all of those bad chemicals leave your body and then the natural deodorant starts to work. And so ever since then, I've been on a quest for the best smelling natural deodorant and now I found it with Wild. It smells great and it actually works. So go to Wild today and get yourself this natural refillable deodorant that genuinely works. You can order by going to wearewild.com and you'll get 20% off your first order when you use the code is this working at checkout that's wearewild.com and code is this working at checkout for 20% off thank you wild Um, I'm going to ask a juicy question for both of you, actually. What about money as an external marker of success? Because something that will always stick with me is a conversation that I was sort of semi-involved in, but more had overheard um, amongst mine and Tiffany's group of friends about who is the most successful person in the group. And the consensus landed on the person assumed to be making the most money because of course no one actually talks about how much they make but the person that everyone else assumed was making the most money was the quote-unquote most successful person in the group so what about money as an external marker of success well I think it's interesting because if you're if you if you're doing something that you really enjoy and then money comes later so you're like you've done the hustle and then suddenly like you're like oh my god thank god I'm getting paid for this now I've done a podcast for five years like yes yay I'm getting money from it that's very different I think from like people I see who I know who work 60 hour days is that that's not a thing 60 hour weeks um and never sleep and look tired when I see them and hate their jobs but they've got a lot of money but they never get to spend it and they never see their kids because they're working the whole time. Would I say they're successful, even though they can buy loads of cars and stuff? Not really. But money, the thing is, this, is, and this isn't controversial, I don't think. Money does make you happy. Like, why do we go around saying money doesn't make you happy? Yes, it does. Money can buy you a garden and, a, and nice things and a fluffy towel and dinner with your friends. I think going around saying money doesn't matter is quite problematic. But scientifically, the research is saying that there is a cap on that. So I, I can't remember the exact figures. I interviewed Ruth Whitman a, a, about it. I think it was something around like 70,000 a year or something. It was like I a think high number. $75,000 So it's 50,000 pounds, yeah. Yeah, um, and that's really interesting because I think then it's um, breaking it down that, yeah, you're not, you might not be happier apparently like one warm blanket by the fire brings you joy but like 20 blankets and 20 fires don't bring you 20 times as much joy so yeah money is a is an emotional topic for sure I feel quite lucky in a weird way because of the way I've worked because I come from startups which are like low salary potentially high reward and then now I'm in the middle of a career change um, from like more cons startup consulting to more creative and writing. I had to take time off to do the book, etc. Um, I've had quite up and down income, which is really unusual because most people just throughout their careers just earn more and more and more. And the problem with that, when you earn more and more and more, you just expand into your um, how much you earn and you'll spend more in your lifestyle. But in a weird way, I've been quite lucky, even though it doesn't feel that way when I can't afford certain things but in having to ha do the up and downs it makes you appreciate and kind of learn 
how to readjust because the fear with money and success, by the way, I think is we, we sit at our level being like, oh, I just want a little bit more and then I'll be happy. But then there are people who then we'll get there and then we're like, oh, I need a little bit more and a little bit more. And you're always going up and up. And it's just about knowing when it's enough is the real challenge. A hundred percent. And I have always known what's enough for me. That is one really great thing. I feel like I know myself really well because when I quit my job to go freelance, I knew what I needed every single month to be genuinely okay with like going out for some dinners, seeing my friends, buying like maybe one new outfit a month. Like I knew, I know what I want and that's different because it's like, yeah, I'm with you on that. It's a kind of never ending, but I know, I know what I'm comfortable with. And actually it's a very freeing, really nice thing because even though my career is going really well at the moment and I'm earning a lot more money than I did a few years ago, I actually know that if it all got taken away from me next year, um, because yeah, let's be honest, like that's always a fear. There's always like a weird imposter syndrome with this stuff. Like I'm not like, oh, that's what I'll make forever now. I'm like, oh God, better save. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that like my 25 year old self was actually okay on an X amount. And that to me is like very comforting, a very comforting thought to know what I kind of can get by on and actually be quite happy. no I I mean (laughs) no I think that's kind of what yeah it's it's, that's um I'm just thinking about it as I go that's kind of what we're talking when you talk about the young self as well I think about how low my salaries were and how I was probably at a similar level of no probably not actually I just I just remember like how far my money could stretch now mm. I'm probably more frivolous and I'm probably, I need to like make sure I'm not as wasteful, I suppose, because I'm not thinking about it as much, but I have photos of going on little mini city breaks and saving up my money and like knowing that I can buy a, a beer on that afternoon and then going on my app and checking what else I can buy. And I had, and like, I look at the photos and I, I was happy. I, I maybe not happier than I am now, but g- genuinely the same amount of happiness. And mm. I know that this sounds a bit woo woo, but there is an exercise that you can do if you're feeling really freaked out about money where you kind of have a bit of a meditation and you ask yourself truly, have I got enough money in this moment? Because all you're doing is fantasizing and thinking that's not reality. That's not real. So you thinking how much money will I have next year is actually taking you away from the moment you're in where you actually, you do have enough. Most of us, most people listening to this podcast, I'm sure right now in this very moment have enough that is something that I've heard that actually before someone explaining that to me and actually you can apply that to more than just money but it's a really powerful exercise to do with when you're thinking about money and it's something that I was doing a lot when I first started freelancing because I just was not used to this concept of money coming in randomly throughout the month I was I'd been working for such a long time in a job where I got x amount every month regardless of what happened um getting paid for my input not for my output and it it freaked me out making that adjustment. And I just had to kind of take a step back and say, all of my financial commitments that I have, can I meet them? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, then you are fine. Um, To take this back a step, as we've been talking about success and different definitions of success, I just really want to hear how you define success for you, Emma. That's a good question. I think it's always changing. And I think my 20 something self had a very different definition of success, but I think fair play to her for wanting that. Now my definition has changed slightly and I think it's always going to evolve. So it's like, I don't want it to be set in stone that this is my definition. But at the moment, my definition is being able to wake up when I want and going for... (laughs) like a Tuesday afternoon, um, I don't know, lunch outside and to have my Fridays off and to earn good money doing what I love. And that's a little bit of a random uh, answer for you. But what I mean by that, I suppose, is for me now it is about some sort of balance and being able to give my time differently. So I think before I was in the hustle so much that I really did miss out on just random opportunities if a friend was in the area 
I wouldn't invite them in. I'd be like, I'm busy. <laughs> now I like the idea that I'm, I have more time for the people I love, basically. So working less is, is, is a success measure for me and earning the same amount. I think when we were talking about money before, it's funny about the, the fear around money. But for me, the fear came from having a salary. So I, I always flip it on its head because I wasn't scared, really, having multiple income streams. I, I'm, it was scary at the beginning. But now I'm not scared at all. If I lose two income streams, I will, I will be fine. I've set it up that way. But God, the fear of redundancy was, was the fear for me. So it, it's different for everyone. But yeah, I don't know. My 40-year-old my self will have a different answer. And that's what's interesting. And I, I think that's really important though. Maybe we need to make sure we ask this question, how do you define success right now? Because that really, everyone that we hear from who answer that question, the the running theme is that it is it changes. And ultimately, if you are really going to define success on your own terms, you also have to be open to that fluidity. So I think yeah. that's really powerful and it definitely feels like it resonates. I've basically given you my definition of success for like this week. <laughs> And that's Which is all um, I need right now. <laughs> I, I love what you say about time because one of the keys to happiness I've learned recently is feeling wealthy in time, which makes yes. so much yes. sense. Yeah. Um, I love that. It's Yeah, I think that's what we're all seeking now. Not all of us, actually, sorry. <laughs> but a lot of us are seeking that. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, being able to be present with people, not feeling like rushed and busy and like that sort of hustle culture way of being. And that's something that a lot of us are prepared to sacrifice money to get, which I think is really interesting. And that's the thing, because actually success as a word in the dictionary, it's kind of, it's quite specific to you have to set a goal in order for it to be successful. You have to actually measure a very certain thing. So you can only be successful if it's like you set the rules. And so for me at the moment, yes, success would be, have I met the goal of being the person I want to be without sounding too deep? which is, yeah, I don't want to be flustered. I want a friend to call me and I want to have an hour to listen to them because yeah. I wasn't like that before. And I, I think maybe this COVID year has changed everyone, but it's definitely changed me. And if I can just do my work in a calmer way, honestly, that's kind of everything to me right now. Could I ask what time you wake up in the mornings? So this has actually changed recently because I've just moved house and the blinds aren't great and the light comes in really early. So I've been waking up much earlier recently. So I used to be like, I will not speak to anyone before 9am. Now I've been getting up at right eight and it's quite nice. Do you use an alarm? I do. Yes. And I, I actually, I was listening to um, Martha Beck on Oprah Winfrey's podcast. I'm sorry that I've banged on about them so much in this podcast, but they are so great at the moment. And they were saying they wake up naturally every day. And I was like, I'd love that. I mean, they're in their fifties and sixties, I think now, but they said that as animals, because we are animals, uh, we are meant to actually wake up more naturally than we do. Because most animals on this planet, they just like a dog just wakes up when it's ready to. And I would love to get to the point where I can wake up naturally. That's what Anna and I that, do. Yeah, this is do Tiffany's you? whole Tiffany's whole mo is uh, waking so what, up. So do you? Alarm no, clock. You don't set any meetings. Uh, no. Um, I, when I went to bed, so most of my meetings I do in the afternoon. But when I went to bed last night, because we we're recording this in the late morning, I was like, "Do I need to set an alarm for this just in case?" But I, I started waking up much earlier when I started waking up naturally, and when I, the beginnings of my day were better. So it's much easier to get out of bed if the next activity is to go and get a coffee and read in bed versus get ready, get on the tube etc so um it's it really changed my life and I'm a big fan of waking up naturally so that's why I was I also have I have a hack for anyone who would like to live the no alarm <laughs> club but can't because for whatever reason I highly recommend getting one of those sunrise alarms because they wake you up in the nicest possible way rather than having your phone go off like a bomb um, the best way I can describe the effect of, uh, I have the, like the Philips one that just, it, it gradually lights up. Yeah. It oh, gradually okay. lights, lights up and also plays, um, 
bird songs. The best way I can describe it is, you know, when you get woken up by your phone alarm and it jolts you right in the middle of a dream, right at the bit where you need to find out what happens at the end of the dream. Since I've been using, when I do have to wake up with an alarm that I use this sunrise alarm, whenever I use it, my dream gets wrapped up and then I get woken up because it's waking you up gradually. So it's rather than jolting you in the middle of whatever it is, the deep sleep, um, it wakes you up naturally. So a big plug for, um, I wish we would sponsored by Philips Lights, but we are not. Um, but big plug for any of those alarms that get, that wake you up naturally is sunrise because it's the closest thing to mimicking being woken I, up naturally. I, I yeah, think amazing. a lot of... I think a lot of sabotage happens around waking up where when you set an alarm for a certain time, even if you naturally wake up earlier, normally you go back to sleep or you stay in bed or I used to snooze a lot. So I'd wake up feeling rubbish. Um, And so I just, I actually think a lot of, again, this kind of a lot of sabotage happens first thing in the mornings that starts our day off in a really rough foot. I will extend. I will extend that though to say the sabotage actually happens the night before. And I've recently <laughs> discovered this thing called revenge, re- revenge procrastination or procrastination revenge bedtime. Something I can't remember the oh, order of the Oh, I word. read about that. Yeah. Yeah. Where you, because you feel like your day has been taken away from you with all of the other obligations you have to meet, you stay up late, even though you know you shouldn't because you just want to reclaim your me time. But ultimately all that happens is then you wake up late. You either wake up later or you wake up not rested the next day. And then you're back on that treadmill because ultimately the best way to prioritize yourself is to put the things you really want to do at the beginning of your day, which is something that ever since I went self-employed has been the biggest shift of how I structure my days and which has had the biggest impact on my own personal well-being, where I start my day with the things that are the biggest priorities. So I walk the dog without my phone so that I can be present and actually play with him. I do my workouts. I eat a nice breakfast. I do all my like journaling and all my woo-woo stuff happens first thing in the morning. Um, And so- Yeah, send you voice notes. Exactly. Kind of, you know, put my priorities at first. Um, and so when it comes to bedtime, I, I just, I go to bed really early because I don't feel yeah, like I'm trying. Yeah. You put yourself first. That's the thing. I mean, I've, I only realized that recently. I think it's a huge thing. I used to do my admin in the mornings because I wanted to get it out of the way because, you know, I hate, I hate it. I hate admin. I hate emails. I want to write. I want to bury myself away in my work and get inspired and have a great day. But what would happen is I was, I would do the admin, be tired by lunchtime, and then I would run out of juice a bit. And that is a really big thing, especially for women, especially for parents, put yourself first because you'll be a nicer person as well, because you, you won't feel like at the end of the day, yeah, that you've just given yourself away to everyone. Cause that is a big thing that I've had to deal with is feeling like people were just like clawing at me constantly. And I'm not, this isn't like me saying I'm constantly in demand or anything, but the amount of favors or DMs or can you do this? Can you do that? Like it genuinely would make me really angry and really annoyed. But if I have like hours in the morning where I've already done my thing that I love, they don't annoy me as much. And also that is how you then have something to look forward to in the morning. Hence why if you don't use an alarm, it's, I don't, I don't snooze anymore because I actually, it is, this sounds so lame and I really don't want to sound like a dick saying this, but I have a reason to jump out of bed in the morning because I know I've got a great, I've got great stuff to do first thing. If, if, you know, back in when I used to, I know again, you know, long time listeners of the podcast know this, but it bears um, repeating. This is not, that I think self-employment and working for yourself is the answer in that all, all traditional working sucks. But for me, the thought of waking up, having to get on the train, go to an office to do a job that I just was totally burning me out just was not the one. And that is when I did use to snooze and it was a chore for me to get out of bed. Um, but anyway, I digress. Um, I just want to bring this back to the book for a second, because one thing that you actually mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation and something that really struck me is that this really is a personal exploration and um, it's really, really vulnerable. And what I really loved about it is it's a short and sweet book, 
And there are just some passages that are just almost a couple of sentences long, but oh my God, they just really kind of like punched me in the gut with how open they were and how much they kind of encapsulated and how much they really sort of resonated um, with me about all of the ways that sabotage can manifest in kind of what Tiffany was talking about in these sort of sneaky ways. Um, I'm just going to read just a quick passage because it's only a sentence long, but it really stuck with me. Um, So it's about, so I, I will just read it. When I was 24, I wanted to write a book so badly that I went to a book event, got drunk on overpriced gin and tonics, live tweeted horrible things about the evening and pissed off all the speakers. Oh my God. Wow. It still follows me around sometimes. <laughs> but what I, what I, to me, that just, it really encapsulated how much shame there is around the sabotaging business that we do to ourselves. And almost that there's almost a bit of a shame hangover that can come after a sabotaging event. Is that something that you discovered or you kind of came across when you were doing all of your exploration and and development for this book is there did you find a link between sabotage and shame yes definitely but also the shame that festers when you're not looking at looking at it in the eye like admitting it actually makes the shame go away like you saying that to me and me laughing I don't feel any shame because I've just told you and I'm being honest and I'm being open and what's lovely about getting older I think is back to the definition of success thing for me it's not about achieving more it's about being more honest and I think what's interesting about sabotage is people are like oh I didn't know you went through this or you were like this And that's because I showed the shiny bits for like my whole 20s because I was on the hustle. And now genuinely, I feel so open. I feel like you can ask me anything. I feel it's a really relaxing feeling when you've got nothing to hide. And I remember my life coach saying that it's really nice to live a blackmail free life. So basically no one has any dirt on you because you've kind of already said it or you are happy to admit it. And also this kind of like, if you're a crab and you have this like hard outer shell, I'm kind of interested in like the soft bit of the crab now. Like let's all just be vulnerable and (laughs) open with each other because at the end of the day, life is quite short and we should learn from each other as much as we can. So yeah, shame was a big thing. And maybe why I wrote the book, I wanted to kind of eliminate that. And I don't think shame can really exist when you kind of know so much about it, like the logistics and the actual, like even just knowing terminology. I've heard this a million times of people who get diagnosed with a mental health issue. They give it a name, like, I don't know, ADHD or OCD, or you have this, you have that. There's an element of shame that kind of disappears when you know what's going on with you. And so if someone can say, oh, that's self-sabotage, I actually think you're going to feel less shame. Yes, definitely distancing yourself from those thoughts. Like that's also came up in the book. Like I am having these imposter syndrome thoughts, whatever it might be, instead of being associating it with you and your identity. So that's always really helpful. Yeah. And we're not taught to be nice to ourselves. That's a weird thing. And that's why I wanted to unpick the inner critic is we internalize love and you know, good things from our family and friends, but we also internalize some of the bad things, the criticisms, even like a one, one line that was said to me, maybe when I was at university about, cause I'm slightly dyslexic and really struggled with my writing at uni. And I just remember them basically saying to me, like, this probably won't be a career thing for you. And it's like, oh my God, I think every time I'm doubting myself, it's actually that person's voice. It's not mine. And that's interesting when you unpick where the voice is coming from. Yeah, it's quite a powerful and um, very kind of confronting journey, I find. Um, okay, something we have been, we've, we ask all guests now, and you've just said that you are an open book. So I feel like you will have a great answer for this. What is your biggest work, Boo Boo? I found this question really interesting because genuinely I couldn't just pinpoint like one thing where I messed up. I'm sure there were things when I was an intern where I, I don't know, left the fridge full of moldy food or something. 
and then got told off. Like there were things like that because I'm just an <laughs> idiot. But when it comes to work boobies, genuinely, they've all stemmed from taking advice from people. And I kind of wanted to talk about this because there is a lot of career advice out there and we're all in the game of it and we love it. But I don't really believe in giving people advice. I just think we don't know what other people are going through. We don't know the directions to where they're going. We don't have a map. And recently, actually, I've come up against it again, where someone in the industry has given me unsolicited advice. And they basically were like, I think you need to do this with your brand. And I think you need to overhaul this side of your career. And I think like this would be really good for you. And maybe you should do this with your books. And I was like, oh my God, if I listened to any of this, I would go completely off the tracks because no one knows what's best for me apart from me. And I think that's why when the multi-hyphen method came out and people started kind of treating me like a career coach, I kind of felt a bit allergic to it because... I, know, I don't know. I don't know the answer to anyone's problems, unfortunately. I don't even know the answers to mine most of the time. So, um, so yeah, I just wanted to bring that up, I guess, that any any wrong directions I've taken or any awful things have come from taking outside advice. This is why I'm loving asking this question because the answers are so rich and helpful, I think, and also just really show also what all of us understand as a mistake as well. For me, when I answered this question, it really was about how cringe, uh, my, it, what came up is my own fear of getting in trouble, basically. So it's very interesting. Mm. Yeah. Um, the, the other interesting thing about the advice thing, because that's a coaching, because I've been through my coaching training now, that's a coaching principle around how the client holds they know what's best for them you hold them as creative resourceful and whole and the answers lie in them and it's interesting because I remember at school there's like a career advice whatever it's called like a department and it's a very top down the concept of career advice and someone's going to tell you how to do your CV and everything and actually as you say because work is changing at such a rate a lot of the advice from top down is actually pretty irrelevant. Um, so we're all trying to learn how to kind of work it out for ourselves and build our own paths because no one can truly advise you. And the tension I have when I start with new coaching people is they actually do, they come to you because they kind of want you to tell them what to do. And there's this really uncomfortable thing where you're like, so I know you've had coaching, Emma, where there's this uncomfortable thing where you they're like, you're like, no, no, I'm not going to give you the answer because that's not going to help you. And I find it really uncomfortable as a coach to not just give them what they want and to, because and and accept that I don't know and let them work it out for themselves and guide them. Yeah, that's so interesting because no one has a magic wand to someone else. But like you say, the most amazing uh, sessions I've had with my life coach is when she has, yeah, prompted me to come up with the answers myself. And then I'm like, oh, okay, I've just had an epiphany. Thank you. And it's really, really useful. And and back to self-sabotage as a theme, I think when we're not listening to ourselves, that's when we self-sabotage. Because genuine, whenever anyone asks me, like, what would you say to your younger self? My advice is always, you know what you're doing. And I have known what I, I have known all this time. It's just that I've got in the way every now and again. But I think when we really sit down in a quiet room, we do know more than we think. And that's quite empowering, I think. So last question, also one that we like to ask all guests. How would you describe your relationship with your work? So this is something I've also been processing and working on. Um, but I love my work. And it is a part of me and it makes me happy and it's part of my identity. And I love it so much to the point where I would probably not have given you an honest answer a few years ago because I felt guilty. I don't have loads of people around me who love their work. Like my best friends don't really like their jobs. I feel weird about it because sometimes I feel like it's like... I'm not a workaholic, but I just feel that I found something I love so much. I want to do it all the time. And I know how lucky that makes me. And it makes me sometimes want to not even say that because like people listening might be like, oh, lucky you. But it's the truth. And I really love it. And I, yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why I was gifted this thing that I love, but I do. And it's interesting. I was talking to my dad on the phone yesterday and um, we're not like similar in any way, really. He's a engineer, 
but he he won't retire he loves it and he's nearly 70 and he's still working and he doesn't need to and he says it brings him so much joy because it gives him a like routine it makes him leave the house he gets to go driving in his car he can help like a little old lady and tell them that their house is not falling down and he really likes it and he doesn't want to stop doing it and I just see myself in him sometimes because I don't really see myself stopping and I don't see myself having a relationship with work that's like that traditional like you work you hate it and then you retire like I'm not up for that I want to love my whole life and you know who knows if I'll even live to retirement age like you kind of I don't think you can live for that end goal I love that that's so powerful and really resonates. I think similar, we're on similar missions as well. So I really, really, I'm here for that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for being here and for this fabulous conversation. Thank you. I was really looking forward to it. I feel like we're kindred spirits and I could just, yeah, we could have a good chat. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Emma. I feel like we could keep going, but we will (laughs) say goodbye. We will continue in a pub one day soon. Thank you to Wild for sponsoring this episode. Go to wearewild.com and you'll get 20% off your first order when you use the code ISTHISWORKING at checkout. Thank you, Wild. You are listening to Is This Working? Hosted by Anna Cogerado and Tiffany Philippou. Produced by Chris Bannister. Please like and subscribe and you can find us in all of your favourite podcasting apps. And also just a quick note before we go to let you know that we are now giving talks at companies. So if you would like to hear us live at your workplace, email us at isthisworkingshow at gmail.com and we will send you something that you can pass along to your head of people or HR department. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm.